Hello and welcome to the Urban Health Podcast, keeping busy city executives and entrepreneurs empowered and healthy. I'm Stephanie Webster. I'm a nutritional therapist on Harley Street, London, specialising in gut health, fat loss and hormone optimization therapy for the over 40s. The topic today is gastrointestinal disorders, microbiome and probiotics, evidence-based and dispelling the myths. And today I have Dr. Mani Nagibi on the show, and this is part of the Gut Instinct series of podcasts produced with you in mind. So a bit of background about me. I was diagnosed when I was 13 with ulcerative colitis after a few failed attempts. I was told I would have to be on prescription medication for the rest of my life and that I would need a bit of my intestine taken out and given a colostomy bag. And I was also told I would end up in a wheelchair. But I told them, thank you for the diagnosis. I wasn't this polite, Uh, but there must be another way. I believe that our body is a beautifully designed machine and I just needed to learn how to treat it better. I thought if I give my body what it needs and nothing that it doesn't need, it will heal itself. So today we're going to talk about the healing process. And to help us, we have the honour and privilege of having Dr. Mani Nagibi on the show. Dr. Mani Nagibi is a consultant gastroenterologist at the National Bowel Hospital St. Mark's and Northwick Park Hospital. He has clinical interests in artificial nutrition, inflammatory and functional bowel disorders, and the effects of medical treatments on a patient's quality of life. He is part of GI Doctors, and they are a group of innovative, multidisciplinary, uh, they have a multidisciplinary approach to investigating and treating all types of gastrointestinal disorders. He is a committee member to several medical societies, a co-author of the National British Artificial Nutrition Survey Reports for Adult Home Parental Nutrition, and continues his research into the effects of artificial nutrition in both cancer and non-cancer patients. I just hope I've done you justice because you're so amazing. It's such a privilege to have you on the show. Oh God, I'm starting to um, blush already. Thank you very much for the um, invitation. Such a kind introduction. I'm delighted to be here today. May I understand what made you choose the speciality of the gut, the bowels, and you know, you know, talking about poo in general? I mean, what what made you choose such a topic of medicine? Well, I I think I I thought quite hard about a couple of specialties. Gastroenterology was one of them. I really liked the kidneys as well. I spent quite a bit of time thinking about that. Anesthetics had a certain um, appeal to me as well. But I thought I do like my patients awake. So uh, that uh, anesthetics went out the window. Um, it, it, It comes down a little bit like when you're at school and you have a good teacher and you really like that topic. Um, and, and it was a bit like that for me. I worked in some Greek, great gastroenterology teams while I was training as a doctor and as a medical student. I really liked the breadth of age and uh, the type of patients that I was seeing then, um, the ability to change patients' quality of life quite quickly. And then there was the endoscopy and hands-on part of the job that I also enjoy and that kind of interaction with the patients of actually, you know, feel like I'm, I'm using my hands to some good. Um, so in the end, uh, that's what I went for, and it just so happened to have um, uh, some some poo involved in it as well. It's just such an interesting system. The digestive system absolutely fascinates me. The mouth, the stomach, 
the gallbladder. I'd love to talk to you about the gallbladder in a minute, but never mind. Let's talk about the difference between functional and structural gastrointestinal disorders. What is the difference? So, <clears throat> the difference between functional and structural gastrointestinal disorders, it comes down to whether you, it, we can actually see some changes to the anatomy of the gut. And you might be able to see small or large changes in those structural, those terms structural, you can see a difference. Uh, something's changed in the anatomy in the x-rays or the endoscopies, or it can be seen during surgery or just physical examination. Functional disorders are when the gut looks entirely normal but it doesn't work in a normal way. Um, and perhaps it's causing symptoms because of that. Now the crossover, there's, there's a bit of crossover, there's nothing's black and white and there's a lot of gray in between. But for example, a perfect example is um, dysmotility. So that's when the motility, the way the gut moves, isn't moving correctly. Now, that can cause quite a lot of symptoms. It can cause bloating. It can cause even distension. And in some cases of extreme dysmotility, you would even see anatomical changes with the gut becoming more dilated. So then really that should be termed a structural GI disorder. But still, all those troubles that you get with bowel that isn't moving correctly is, is termed functional at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what it's called because your doctors are hopefully more interested in the underlying cause and helping you to control your symptoms. Now, you're part of GI Doctors, and for those who are listening and you want to look up whilst we're talking here, it's www.gidoctors.co.uk, and you do a lot of diagnosis there, and often these conditions can get misdiagnosed, and it's from one specialist to another, and then finally you get your diagnosis, and then you can start treatment. And you have, uh, t tell us about GI doctors and the the diagnosis that you do and then the treatment plans for, for example, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's, or whatever you see most commonly. So quite commonly uh, within, uh, within the group of GI doctors, we're seeing patients who um, often have really busy lives, who um, are working, busy um, in their family life and at home as well, uh, and yet they're experiencing a lot of symptoms. Now, those symptoms may not always have a name. They may not always show up abnormalities on investigation. So we would carry out a, a detailed history, examine the patient in the classic way, carry out simple uh, tests such as blood tests and x-rays and more complex tests like CT scans, MRIs, or endoscopies. And based on that, what we try and do is find one, the underlying cause. Can it be described as a single or a syndrome that is well recognized? And if that's not the case, can we actually control the symptoms, make the quality of life better for uh, the patient in a way that suits their life? And um, some people, very much would suit them to take one tablet a day or two tablets or a powder and others say well that's just not for me 
then we'll look at dietary ways of manipulating uh, their symptoms and making them feel better. Or, you know, we're talking probiotics today. That's just one of the um, one of the things that we can use that may not be really considered as true medicines. Um, so as a group, we work um, with gastroenterologists and colorectal surgeons within that group to look at all aspects of uh, gut problems. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some common conditions can present uncommon symptoms and equally some common uh, conditions can have symptoms that you wouldn't normally associate with them so having a, an investigative approach that's multifactorial is really important to really nail it down because the wrong treatment uh, to the wrong diagnosis is just it's just it's just bad news it all starts with the right diagnosis and then you can it have best treatment yes get it Get it right first time. Um, uh, that's that's one of um, one of the mottos that not only works for us in um, GI doctors, but also works uh, for the NHS as well. And yes, you 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 get common conditions um, showing themselves up in um, abnormal ways or more commonly recognised ways. Um, and and that's why I think perhaps maybe initial investigations are sometimes uh, not showing abnormalities, that's where a a personalised direction and and using multiple professions with their input is going to be helpful, which is is what what we uh, try and do at both GI Doctors and in the rest of my uh, practice as well. It's so difficult. One little... Yeah. Sorry, sorry. One little example I would use is that so often I have patients who come to see me who have uh, diarrhea, loose bowel motions that are more frequent. And it's, it's really quite uncanny how often, if, if your doctor thinks about it and, and, and thinks of this as an option, finds the cause is actually constipation. And your colon, your large bowel, can be fully, fully loaded with lots of solid stool and only the liquid stool is actually getting passed. Yes. So you're being investigated for diarrhea, it's actually constipation. Simple test will give you the answer. Yeah, and, and also ulcerative colitis, and I can honestly say, I, I have had, when I was really bad, I was flared up all the time, I would go 40, 40 times a day. But I've also experienced the reverse, where I'm absolutely constipated for four days. So the same condition can have different journeys for different reasons. Absolutely, and even in ulcerative colitis, uh, especially when it affects maybe a part of the colon, say the left side of the colon, the last 30, 40 centimetres of the colon, that bit can be really, really irritated by the inflammation. Just above that, it's as if there's a line drawn and the bowel is saying, don't, don't, don't really want any more coming through. So it actually starts building up the stool above it. So you can have a condition that is truly causing diarrhea in the last 30, 40 centimetres, and above it, it has constipation. And, and, and then the symptoms are really difficult to get, find the pattern. But if we're thinking about these things, we'll find them. Can, can I admit something that I've never admitted before? And you talking here, isn't it? Yeah, I, ha- I had chronic fecal impaction. Mm-hmm. That, 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 how did it feel? It, well, it, it was one of my least glamorous moments, I have to say. How did you feel? How did you feel after the treatment? I felt pregnant. I felt like <laughs> I felt stopped. Oh. 
That's what, during it, but what, what about after it was clear? Oh, the relief. I was reborn. <laughs> it's so satisfying. Yeah. It's so satisfying when simple things can be changed to make enormous changes. It's so, yeah, absolutely. And I, I really think stress has a huge impact, you know. It's not just food, it's not just life. It's stress and the gut-brain axis, which I don't think we know enough. But I, I really do believe that it affects the gut in ways that we haven't as yet understood. I think you've had, hit the nail on the head there. The gut-brain axis, you can actually add gut-brain microbiome Let's talk to that about axis. That. Because there's as many nerve endings or more nerve endings in your GI tract than there are in your brain. And that blows my mind. That I, I can't even say that again, Sora, so we all can digest that. So the nerve endings that connect with each other, yeah. the more of them you have in your brain, it's considered uh, a higher form of, uh, of, um, of brain function. The more of them tend to be in the higher um, intelligent animals. But there are as many, if not more, nerve connections in your gut than there are in your brain. So that, and they're really closely related, stress does have an effect on your gut. I mean, it just fascinates me. Is it just me and you that finds this absolutely riveting? Or, or... No, it's, it's all your audience as well. <laughs> so so um, I, I'm interested in low-carbohydrate diets and the serotonin that doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. And then you feel a bit low when you're low-carbing it. But then, you know, you need to make the gains. So you sort of have to make these. But it's just being aware of why you might be feeling a bit low if you're not eating enough carbs. Exactly. What you, you are what you eat. I mean, in the past, that was a throwaway comment. But you literally are what you eat. What you eat actually affects and changes the microbiome, which has far more... Um, effects on us than we actually know about. Mm-hmm. Aha, but we are not what we eat, we are what we absorb. So tell us about your meal that you create, the nutrition that you, um, the liquid nutrition. Oh, well, liquid nutrition as a, um, a form of nutrition can be given in, in many ways. Uh, it can be taken in many ways and it can have different levels of broken down types of uh, molecules and what could be considered uh, food. It can also um, contain fiber in it or it can be without fiber. It can be broken down into its really, really small, small um, uh, molecules into amino acids. Um, it can be made to taste um, acceptable. Um, it can even be used as a pure treatment for Crohn's disease. So Crohn's being an inflammatory condition uh, of the gut, it can affect anywhere in the gut, from the mouth all the way to the to the anus. It tends to affect the, the the joint between the small bowel and the large bowel the most. And one of its mainstay of treatments is um, steroids. Um, and, and steroids have a lot of side effects. And when you need them, that's great. But sometimes you can avoid having them by having pure enteral liquid nutrition. Now, I do think that that should be um, led by a dietitian who specializes in that kind of uh, um, diet and treatment and a gastroenterologist who takes interest in that. But yeah, just enteral nutrition, broken down food, is equal to steroids in controlling Crohn's, uh, which is fascinating. 
It is absolutely fascinating. And for those who don't quite um, aren't quite following that, let's let's start with the beginning. So in the mouth, we chew the food. The mouth actually starts to release amylase, and the saliva mixes with the food. The teeth uh, break down the food, increase the surface area. You then swallow. It goes into the stomach, and then it gets hit with hydrochloric acid, which breaks everything apart. You've got the protease that strips down the protein and the and the meat, perhaps, if you're eating, or the protein inside the food that you're eating. You've got the uh, amylase, which breaks down the carbohydrates, uh, and then you've got the fat. And I'm saying all of this because I'm coming onto the gallbladder, and I'm so upset when they get removed willy-nilly. And, uh, you know, we need the gallbladder. So bile is produced and stored and concentrated in the gallbladder. And then that is released into the stomach and it creates my cells in, in the fat. So it's a bit like fairy liquid going onto that oil slit, creating lo- lots of little globules. And then the lipase can attack that. Now, if you're still with me, great. If you're not, don't worry, because we have, <laughs> we have you on hand to, to break that down further. Um, how was that so far? Uh, it's good. I mean, the production of bile is is in the liver, and yes, you're right that it gets concentrated in the gallbladder, yeah. um, and then uh, from there, the gallbladder drains it um, into the small bowel, just as the stomach content goes into the small bowel, um, and you get um, hormonal interaction between the stomach and the gallbladder. The stomach tells the gallbladder that food is about to come, and you better you better do your business. And it get and it and it um, allows the bile to mix with the food. And you're absolutely right that the um, the fat requires bile to be broken down so that it can be absorbed later on. Without the gallbladder, that that, that concentrated bile isn't there. Um, but many people have have had full and um, uh, symptom-free lives when their gallbladder has been removed, though there is that group of uh, people who suffer a particular type of diarrhea um, when the gallbladder isn't present. Or they have fat-soluble deficiencies like vitamin A, D, E, K, and so on, where they haven't broken it down. So I give uh, bile supplements, lecithin granules, so that they can break it down easier. And I, with any fatty meal or with, um, and I I also supplement with those fat-soluble vitamins in the same meal so that they can get the maximum um, uh, absorption that they can. Um, My focus... Sorry. Yeah, no, carry on. I was going to say I would go one one step further to say that the, um, one of the reasons that gallbladders are removed or commonly uh, removed is the gallstones. And when there are gallstones, it's possible that gallstones have in the past caused some damage to the pancreas. Um, and the pancreas is, is essential for breaking down fats, and, and, and that might be the reason that the um, extra enzymes that we use as well when the pancreas isn't fully working uh, helps to break down those fats and allow the fat-soluble uh, vitamins uh, A, D, E, and K to be uh, well absorbed in that circumstance. Okay, let's talk about probiotics before I lose my mind over the gallbladder being removed you know, without any manners whatsoever um so I, I i don't know why we can't create a digitally printed version that we can just put in you know like a boob implant but i got so that it can be stored and con- never mind I, 
It's just me, my little personal product. You should see my fridge. Let's talk about probiotics. Now, some nutritional therapists love them. Some nutritional therapists say they don't survive the hydrochloric acid in the stomach, so you're wasting your money. I have done the, the comprehensive stool analysis uh, test, the CSAP test with Nordic Labs, and I've taken stool samples before use and I've taken them after. Now, I, I, I am happy for my mind to be changed, but I have seen difference in the stool when we use, uh, when we use uh, probiotics with clients, and I've noticed it myself when I don't take them. I, I, I can notice the difference, but um, I like Simprove, I like VSL, I like Udo's Choice. There's a lot of different ones. I like different strains for different reasons. I prefer refrigerated, and I, I do like sauerkraut occasionally. Sometimes it makes me bloat. Anyway, that's my view. Tell us a little bit about probiotics. Do they survive the gut or not? So, um, yes is the short answer. Um, we've got really good evidence that they do. Um, we've got um, experimental evidence to show that bacteria that have been labeled with a particular substance that can be um, recognized later on, that when they're taken in no other way than in capsules or orally or as a liquid, they are found in the colon, in the large bowel, where they do most of their business. Um, and so they, they must have survived. Now, all of them don't need to have survived. Just a critical number needs to have survived because then they multiply when they get into the environment that is conducive to them. So all of them don't need to survive. I mean, Another, are you telling me you, you actually spray paint a bacteria and then you follow it through? I mean, how, you tag a bacteria. How do you do that? I mean, it's so amazing, isn't it? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to say that I have very, very competent colleagues who spend their entire life and their um, profession knowing how to do that. All I know is that it can be tagged with lots of different things that you can actually see That's on so radionuclear cool. um, tests. And, and that those have been detected in yes. the gut. Um, and, that, and, that's, and that's been done experimentally and been repeated. And, and another, another thing that we know, now we know, is that the majority um, of um, ulcers in the stomach and in the first parts of the small bowel, the duodenum, um, are caused or contributed to by a particular um, bacteria called Helicobacter pylori. And the home of this bacteria is in the stomach. It lives in the stomach. Mm. That's its natural um, existence in the, in the human body. So bacteria can survive there. And there's lots of other experiments that we can talk about that have shown a positive effect of um, probiotics on a particular condition or symptom versus a placebo. So it wasn't just you know, in the, in, in the patient's mind, mm -hmm. because it's working, it must be getting to where it's having its effect, which is the large bowel. Okay, so do you, you actually have a case study where this has been, this, is, this has happened to, to success? Do you want to yeah, share that? I, can, I can think of um, notable um, patients in my, in my career that yeah. I've, I've seen and, and been able to help. Um, I think one of, the, one, of the, one of the experiments that wasn't, uh, it wasn't done by, by me, but it was the one experiment that made me go from being a bit of a non-believer in this whole concept of microbiome and what it does to really sitting up and listening. 
really paying attention. And it was published in 2006, um, and it was an experiment that was done on mice. And um, this group were able to get um, a group of mice that were germ-free, so they can be uh, manufactured in the uh, or cultivated in the in the lab quite easily, kept away from um, bugs, completely germ-free. Half of them were given a fecal transplant, so literally a poo transplant through the mouth into the gut of a obese mouse. And the other half were given a fecal transplant in exactly the same way from a non-obese mouse. And the two groups were allowed to have the same level of activity, same food, and those that received fat mouse poo became fat, and those that didn't, didn't. And they started off as exactly the same. They had the same amount of activity, same amount of food. So that simple equation of what goes in equals your weight gain is not absolutely true. And just the type of microbiome that you've got in your gut can promote obesity. And that made me really sit up and listen because there's something in this. Yeah, but I, it blows my mind. Uh, absolutely. I think no, we haven't managed it the other way around. We haven't managed to give uh, obese um, experimental animals or humans um, lean, thin um, people's poop and make them thin. That hasn't worked that way. But the person who does is going to get, well, one, a Nobel Prize, and two, become very rich. Well, I think you and I need to work on that. I think there are many people working on it, but let's band together like, like a, like a experiment. Like a gut brain axis. Like a gut brain axis. <laughs> I'll be the gut. You'll be the brain. <laughs> so I, I, I heard that about the obesity, but I also heard it about depression. But this was done in people. They took a happy person and a depressed person, and they they swapped it around, and there was this relationship between mood disorders and the brain and the gut and I just I read these things and I, I just open my jaw with amazement disbelief hope and amusement all at the same time I just nothing quite tickles me the same it tickles me pink in the same way I really I just don't know what to say well, to that I think hope all of those words all of those adjectives are true hope is the hope is the one that really stands out for me because yes there is mounting evidence that mood disorders like depression, not in everybody, but perhaps in a certain group, can be related to the health of the gut, the microbiome, and it's, um, it's yet to be at a level where we can make, we give people advice. It's, we're far away from saying, this pill that affects your microbiome will improve your mood, but there is enough there for, for scientists and uh, research groups around the world to be feverently working in this area. Um, and just watch this space. It, it will, it will it either it will peter out to nothing or it will, it will have an effect. Um, I think it's too early to say which way. Um, I, will even, I will even expand on that, that there is a link being made between your gut, its microbiome, its health, and Parkinson's disease. No. A movement disorder which 
um, disabled by some products. And up until very recently, we had no idea but that these toxins could be originating in the gut and perhaps traveling upwards. Um, again, watch this space. This is way too early to start saying that therapeutic um, uh, treatments are going to come out of this kind of research, but it really makes you sit up and listen. Do, do you do fecal transplants? So fecal transplants at the moment are purely done under um, under uh, trials. Um, they are not available widely. There are trials that have to be very tightly um, controlled because we, there is a potential to do harm here as well. Um, one person's uh, feces may may actually have harmful effects. We don't know that yet. And there are labs and centers around the country that are developing safe ways of um, transplanting stools in the same way that the same process needed to be done for blood transfusions. And there was the unfortunate incidences in the 80s where blood transfusions uh, were responsible for a group of pa uh, patients uh, receiving hepatitis C before we really knew what it was about. Mm -hmm. And we've got to be careful that that doesn't happen. We've got a responsibility here. Um, St. Mark's, uh, where I work um, as part of my um, uh, NHS practice, is uh, the National Bowel Hospital. And it's one of the um, hospitals that carries out trials and experiments in uh, fecal transplants. Well, I'm happy to donate my body to science if you require any UC grafting or whatever you need for your studies. Happy to, happy sure. to offer myself here. But, um, but now, keep all the bits you need. We might take your poo. Okay, cool. But I, I, for anyone who's listening to this, who's thinking, these people have lost the plot, who, the, who on earth is thinking of fecal transplants to put another person's poo in your body... You need to understand, if you're not well, and a lot of the people listening to this are not well and they're scouring the internet for answers and finding a way to manage their, their bodies and their symptoms, they'll try a lot of different approaches before they find a system that works for them. So they'll, they'll entertain something that might sound bizarre to you, but, you know, it, that they're, you know it, is it any less bizarre than having a pill and you read the label and it says one in two people die. I mean, you know, everything's slightly strange if you examine it, really. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're in science as someone who has had a chronic condition since you were in your early teens is, is spot on. Because it's really hard to imagine how someone unwell feels when their treatment isn't working. Um, I, I get a common cold and I forget what it's like to be feeling well. And, yeah. and within days, days. Um, and, and you're right, um, you know, these things that might not sound pleasant, um, actually, if they can have a positive effect, uh, people will be willing to use them. Now, they're not being spooned up on a plate. We're talking about either transplanting it directly into the colon using a camera, a colonoscopy, or a tube that goes through the nose into the stomach. So that it's going past your mouth and your taste sensations. It's going directly into the stomach. But there's a little bit more evidence that stool and bacteria in the gut do work because there are tests going out right now to see which is the better of the two because they do both work, top and bottom. I have to say, in the last five years, I have heard more about celiac disease, colon cancer, ulcerative colitis, IBS, 
Crohn's disease and all sorts of conditions that I'm not saying we didn't have before, but um, we have better diagnostics now. We understand a lot, a lot of uh, a wider variety of conditions now. And I will say, if you have a condition and you have been diagnosed or you're not sure about the diagnosis that you've been given and you want a second opinion, please go to gidoctors.co.uk, multidisciplinary approach that can look at you from all angles and finally hopefully get some answers and stop the struggle. It is not normal to feel this way and there is another way and just continue your search until, until you find something that works for you and find your version of optimal health. So thank you so much for coming on to the show. Do you have anything else you'd like to share? Oh, um, there's so much. There's so much that we can talk about. I, I, I think that um, these these um, probiotics are... What I would like to say, actually, yes. is that if you're not feeling unwell and if you don't have symptoms, um, perhaps there isn't any immediate need to take probiotics. I think having a, um, a food that we've already mentioned, like sauerkraut or kaffir, which is like a fermented um, yogurt, those things are very good. But if you're not feeling unwell, then you probably don't need probiotics either. So use them for the things that they've been meant and designed to work for. I think general gut health, you can get that better from people like yourself, Stephanie, who can actually give them advice about their dietary intake, that will go a long way more. Thank you so much for coming on to the show, Dr. Nagibi. It was such a pleasure to have you on. You're so insightful. I like how you take big, complicated concepts and just you speak so so, artic- so elegantly and explain, um, explain things simply so that people like me can understand. So thank you very much for coming on to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Hope to speak to you again. Bye-bye. And thank you all for listening to the Urban Health Podcast, Keeping Busy People Healthy.